Hello, and welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. On today's episode, Seattle facial plastic surgeon William Portuese and Real Self CEO Tom Seary reflect on over a decade's worth of collaboration and dive into Dr. Portuese's unique perspective as the first surgeon to answer a consumer question on Real Self. Dr. Portuese, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're not very busy, right? Well, we had a little surgery today and <laughs> managed to squeeze some time in to come on down and say hello. Yeah, you do have one of the busiest practices I've encountered in not just Seattle, but nationwide. Tell me more about your practice. You have multiple doctors. Are you solo? What do you have going on? I'm a solo physician right in downtown Seattle, facial plastic surgeon, board certified. And my practice is facial cosmetic surgery, which includes rhinoplasty, facelifts, eyelid surgery, cheek and chin implants. I've been in private practice for 29 years. Okay. I guess I have to ask, do you enjoy it? I have a lot of fun doing what I'm doing. That's good. And just tell a little bit about your training. Where do you train? How'd you get to this place? Well, I grew up in Oklahoma and did a my ear, nose, and throat residency in Shreveport, Louisiana at LSU Medical Center, and then went on and did a fellowship in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery in uh, Beverly Hills, California, and then moved up here and started private practice in 1991, built out my practice, and then uh, built a surgery center a couple of years thereafter so that I could not have to take patients to the hospital, which was unaffordable, and was able to control the prices, mm -hmm. costs for the patient. Mm -hmm. And so I've been in private practice ever since. And in the last oh, seven or eight years, I've been clinical instructor at the University of Washington, allow the plastic surgery residents, the ENT residents to come over and observe surgery. Now, let's see. It's been 13 years since Real Self got started. And when I decided I was going to start this business, I thought it might be a good idea to talk to somebody who actually knew something about cosmetic surgery and I was talking to a woman I knew who said, oh, well, you should talk to this doctor, Dr. William Portuguese. He's here in town. He actually lives near your house. And, and so we were introduced. I came over to your house. Do you remember that night that I came by your house? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Did I drink all your wine? Or well, I think we had not. a couple glasses of wine. And okay. you had a, a very brilliant idea to do a social media platform revolving around the cosmetic surgery industry. And it caught my attention because I thought it was very interesting. And you had the entire idea, the whole real self-concept on a laptop computer. And I mean, you had just launched the idea and, and were showing me your, your slide deck of what you were trying to accomplish. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. I just didn't know if, where it would go. I mean, and, but I, once I sort of got to know you a little bit better and, you know, a year later, six months later, three years later, I knew that this would be a really, really good concept. Let me hold you on that. What was the signal or sign you sort of flipped from interesting idea from some guy I don't know to, okay, this is on to something. Was there one thing in particular or was it sort of just, you know, overall? I started seeing traction on Google. I started seeing traction with patients calling the office, traction with patients mentioning the fact that they had heard about me or seen me on the Real Self platform. And that's when I knew that you really had a great idea. And I knew it was going somewhere. 
Well, I appreciate that feedback. And yeah, I think real self is a combination of my work and my team's work, but also doctors coming together with consumers and sharing expertise or experiences. In your case, I think, I believe you and Grant Stevens are the individuals who were the first doctors to actually respond to a question on our platform. And today, where do you stand in terms of number of questions you've responded to on the platform? I've answered in excess of 30,000 questions on the platform. Okay. Do you keep well, a counter it's, at it's home? In the, it's on the counter reader board on my sponsored ads, and it's also on the metrics where you can look up okay. on real self. I don't know if I've done anything 30,000 times, so <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, you know, I don't know. I, I do remember the day you asked me to answer a couple of questions, uh -huh. and, I, and I said, well, okay, that'd be an interesting concept, you know, to get some content, original content out there. And the question was, what is a rhinoplasty? <laughs> <laughs> what is a facelift? And but you know what? I am going to urge my team, and you've been behind this, by the way, of suggesting we actually show on the websites for other people to see how many times that question has been viewed. And in the case of these basic ones, we're not talking a thousand times. We're not talking 10,000 times. Millions. Millions of times these have been viewed and not just 10 years ago, but as of yesterday, as we sit here today, they're being viewed, which is maybe why you've answered all those questions because you wanted to get in front of consumers doing research. What inspired you to spend so much of your personal time unpaid to answer so many questions? Well, answering questions to patients as a physician, then you look like you're the, you know, the authority. You look like you're not trying to sell something. You've just put out information, patients can look at that, digest it. And then if and when they're in the cycle of wanting to have a procedure done, where you've given them the content, the information on how to make an informed, educated, smart decision, they may or may not call you, especially if they're in your location, let's say Seattle or Washington. So who helped you write these 30,000 questions? Well, I did it all just, I started off typing typing the answers, but I'm not that fast of a typer. So I went out and spent $600 on a dictation system. Mm -hmm. And that dictation system allowed me to move through that process a lot faster. Mm -hmm. I don't do any canned answers. I don't have a, an automatic copy paste, copy paste, yeah. copy paste mm -hmm. type of situation. I, I actually answer them. Some of the sentences may be this, you know, a yeah. couple of the same, but it's, it's an, it's an original answer that specifically answers that question. That's so there's a tip in there for doctors when they're responding to a question, I believe you're saying, just answer what they're asking, not what you want to say. Correct. Answer the question. But the key metric that I think for physicians to understand is that, you know, some patient from New York, now I'm in Seattle, but, mm -hmm. but some patient from New York might ask a question, but people in Seattle are going to read that answer. Mm -hmm. So you're talking to a broad audience. Yes, you're answering that one patient's question in New York or Florida, but lots and lots of people in the Pacific Northwest will read those answers, the Q&A. So I think it's important to be in front of consumers making a decision on whether they want to get a nose job. They're going to want to go to somebody who's answered their questions for them. What are some of the things that you, now that you have 30,000 in your rearview mirror, so to speak, what did you learn? And I don't want you to tell me all the things you learned, but what are some of the key things you've learned from getting 30,000? What wouldn't you have known sitting here today if you hadn't taken that time? 
Well, it's interesting. It helps me to understand what patients are asking the questions. So if patients keep asking the same questions over and over and over again, there's a disconnect. There's an educational disconnect. And the classic example of what's the difference between a septoplasty and a rhinoplasty? A septoplasty is done for breathing in the nose and a rhinoplasty is done for cosmetic. They can be done together. They can be done separately. Mm -hmm. But there's an enormous amount of patient confusion regarding that issue. Mm -hmm. One of the things, you and other surgeons, but I learned to listen to you carefully when you give advice and it served me well, is... You said at some point, look, I think these post-op questions are getting to a place where they're inappropriate for me to respond to and they're just redundant as well as, you know, are these normal results? Can you talk a little bit more about, because, you know, at Real Self, we did end up saying to consumers, I'm sorry, but we've decided we are no longer going to support questions that are related to your post-op recovery, direct questions such as, is this normal one week later? Right. I remember, you know, several years ago that there were a lot of questions. And the question would be something in the order of, well, I'm two days after post-op after a rhinoplasty. Why can't I breathe out of my nose? Mm-hmm. I had a septoplasty three days ago. Why can't I breathe out of my nose? And those are questions that are really best answered by the operative surgeon, not another physician on the platform, on the real self platform. They really need to hear it from their physician And if they didn't know that beforehand, it's really important that they should have. The the surgeon should have told the patients, you're not going to be able to breathe out of your nose after septoplasty for at least a week. So do you think that's another, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that another observation you've made over the the course of 3000? That boy, a whole bunch of patients out there who've had these surgeries appear not to have had adequate understanding of the communication they can have with their practice after and in recovery and care after care. Correct. The educational component of the post-operative care, pre-op care, Mm post-operative care is very, very important. And patients either don't get that or they just don't listen or it goes in one ear and out the other. But for the most part, I think there's a communication gap to some degree between the physicians and their staff and the expectations of what the patient really wants. Mm -hmm. Interesting. In terms of observations you've made, you've shared with me another one, which is, and this is more in the realm of patients sharing their feedback, both on Real Self Platform and other review platforms in terms of their satisfaction with a procedure, particularly rhinoplasty being sort of a hot button one, where there is concerns between you and your peers about patients who manifest by dysmorphic disorder or indications that they might be having some issues with understanding their own identity and and so forth. Do you have anything you want to add to what you see happening? And is it new in terms of BDD or has it always been there and it just makes your job more challenging in terms of the screening and as you put yourself on the internet and become so visible to millions of people? Body dysmorphia is probably the biggest single challenge that I have in my practice. And stems from a variety of reasons. There's a depression component to it. There's an, kind of an OCD, obsessive compulsive component to it. And patients are looking in the mirror very extensively, maybe a hundred times a day, maybe three, four, five hours a day. And it, it, it really is, they're distressed and distraught over the most minuscule piece of anatomy that really 
it, it's the irrelevant. rest of the world couldn't see him potentially. Yeah, the rest of the world yeah. couldn't see it. Right. They see it and they magnify it and they can't get out of this recurrent loop in their brain and to just try to move on. And, and so what happens is they're tortured. They can't go out of the house because everybody's looking at this issue and they torture not only myself, my staff, themselves. And you can never get these patients through the goalposts. It's impossible. So I mean, as you're learning that you have to do more on the front end of the screening process on your education on the internet, because you just said you just answered 30,000 questions where the patient should be highly educated by you, but yet you're still having this disconnect. What, what do you think well, the, the, it requires of your practice and you now? It's very difficult to screen patients for body dysmorphia. We kind of get some inklings of it. We kind of get some ideas. I see. Patients don't like to hear that I think you might consider this type of a diagnosis. I think you need some professional help. That's a hard conversation I imagine to have. It's an extremely hard conversation and they don't, yeah. patients don't take it well. It's like telling a friend, I think you have a drinking problem. That's a hard conversation to have in a seriously taken fashion. Yeah. Hmm. Patients try to trust their provider. I'm trying to do the right thing for the patients and trying to get them to a place where they feel good about themselves. And the problem with body dysmorphia is that you can give somebody a fantastic looking nose. They just don't like it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of a real headbanger for the surgeon because they don't like it and they just, they're unhappy and I'm trying to make people happy. They pay me to give them a new nose and I did the service for them, but they're not happy. So for the surgeons who are listening, I mean, I'm sure they have their own ways of thinking about this, but have you discovered anything that you'd give as a tip? Like, hey, here's either a red alert, this is a flag, or is there anything new you can add uh, to the conversation I, about BDD in I, your industry? I don't, I don't have space? anything new to add other than these folks just tend to be overly concerned about a very minutiae piece of anatomy. And we try to pick them out of the lineup if you can. Once you've done surgery on them, then you've kind of, you kind of own that patient. Yeah. And then I try to talk to them about the issues and bring it to their light and put a little sunshine on that disorder. And then I also talked to him about it. There's a book out there called The Broken Mirror. It's designed or written specifically for these body dysmorphic patients. It's patient-centric. And then there's a website called bddfoundation.org, bddfoundation.org. Yes. And there they have an extensive online test you can take at home. There's support systems, there's therapy, there's uh, the recommendations for psychologists, psychiatrists that can help people get through this issue. But I, I think the biggest issue is patients just have to come to the realization they got to get out of the rut because it's a dark rut and it's a dark tornado that they get themselves worked into and they can't get out of it. And sometimes it takes medications like antidepressants and it takes a psychologist and some professional help. But we're just trying to look out for the patient's best interests, and that's the best we can do. You know, I talked about this body of 30,000 answers out there, and I kind of, why wouldn't that have reduced the number of people coming in who, who have this? But I guess it's more about getting informed is different than self-awareness and self-understanding, you know, well, knowing what you're behaviorally well, psychologically, I've, how you're approaching. The, the body dysmorphia issue is, is really, think about how many pictures we take nowadays on a cell phone. Mm. You know, back in the day- I see you taking selfies all the time, by oh, the way. Oh, no, I, I'm not a <laughs> selfie kind of guy. But there's a lot of that going on. Absolutely. And just in my own, just on my own cell phone, for example, I think I have over 4,000 pictures. 
But many of us have thousands and thousands of photographs on our cell phones or iPhones. And, and whereas, you know, years ago, you used to have to go down and get your film developed with 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. And well, you would only have 24 or 36 photographs. And 10 would have been blurry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and seven would be your eyes closed. But the selfies is a real deal. And it's a, yeah, it's a wide you. parabolic image. It's a fishbowl, fisheye lens, and it magnifies things and distorts facial images. That's really interesting because the facial plastic surgeons, that's your territory above the clavicle typically. No, correct. And that's where you're right, that the trends are there. You have been proficient and very active, not just in answering questions, but posting photos on the Real Self platform and your own website, seattlefacial.com. And I, I don't know on, on your platform, how many pictures you have, but on Real Self, you have 1900 photos and First, how do you get that many? Doctors come up to me all the time and say, well, I can't get my patients to agree to be one in, you know, it's their face. They don't want to be on the internet. Do you have any tip there on like, what is it that you talk to the patient about to say, are you comfortable having your image on the internet? First of all, I think you really have to have a great relationship with a patient. You have to give them a great service. You've done what you told them you were going to do. You set the expectations and you execute on exactly what you told patients you're going to do. So patients are happy with the service. So, you you know, it's your team. It's not just the doctor. It's your team. Yeah. I make them look good, but my staff makes them feel good about their decision to come have their surgery with us. Then I take their after pictures. Let's say it's at four months or six months after the surgery. And then, we, and then I print out a before and after of all the different angles and I hand them to the patients. And then the patient's... They look at their own before and after images on paper in front of them and they go, wow. And that is the moment to ask the patient. Can I share these? Can I share these with other people? Can I please put these on my website with your permission? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no. Mm -hmm. But I at least always ask. Mm -hmm. And then I have to have written permission from HIPAA disclosure to you know, make sure that I have their written consent to yeah. do, to do it's so. It's interesting how the ask is something that doctors have asked me, well, why does this doctor have hundreds of reviews and I can only get two? And I say, do you ask? And they go, oh, I don't feel comfortable asking. So you, can have, you, to, you have to ask. You have to ask for reviews. Yeah. You have to ask to use the pictures. And you've got to have decent pictures, you know, good photography and very good results in order to be able to post those on your website and on real self. Is it enough though? I mean, why not just a hundred great sets of photos? Why over a thousand? You, know, you seem to work on the law of large numbers. <laughs> well, you know, you have lots of answers, lots of photos, and we'll go to Instagram where you also have lots of activities. So let's, what is it's it? It's just that, about transparency. I mean, a lot of people don't know what plastic surgeons do. They think it's all, you know, some voodoo type medicine or whatever. They don't really know. And here it is. Here's thousands of patients photographed. Here's hundreds and hundreds of videos. And even on Instagram, I'll post some videos of patients that have got terrible bruises after the rhinoplasty. I don't have anything to hide. Yeah, that's interesting. As I was just going to say, Dr. Chase Lade in the Bay Area, he has this interesting approach to transparency where he'll say to a patient who is unhappy with their result, please post that online. Please share that on Real Self. I want you to share that. And his philosophy is it helps set expectations. It it is just the truth is that you don't get perfection all the time. You don't hit home runs every day. Correct. And I just found that to be 
so counter to everything I see in the rest of the overall aesthetic space, which is about trying to just get that perfection demonstrated. And you just said something and said, no, it's not about perfection. Well, and I've, I've asked patients if they would, wouldn't mind posting a review and, you know, say five or 10% of my patients are going to need a, re, a little touch-up of some type, a little touch-up on their eyelids or a touch-up on their facelift or a touch-up on their rhinoplasty. And I tell the patients, it's fine. In your review, say you had to have a little touch-up. So we did your primary surgery and then I had to come back and do a little futzing around. It's fine. Revision rates are sort of a touchy subject with your peers. It's not something they put on their websites. And, and is this something you'll be willing to share with your we patients? We put it on our websites, right on my website. Your touch-up rate for rhinoplasty is 10%, minimum. We're just kind of in the genre right now talking about a subject of expectation management. And I'm bridging off of the bidysmorphic disorder because I, I would argue that part of it, the challenge out there for surgeons like yourself is making sure people coming in have expectations properly set. But one of the things that is interesting is you post your prices. Correct. On your website. Correct. Can you talk more about that and why? So again, it's about transparency. If you look at your Google Analytics, the number one area on the website the patients go to is the photo gallery. Yes. They want to see your work. They want to see the quality of the work and they want to see consistency. If you see the work you like, you go, oh, okay. Well, how much is this going to cost? So the second thing, the most common area people go to on a website, or at least my website, is the price list. Sorry, your second most viewed page on seattlefacial.com is a list of prices, prices. of procedure. And is Correct. it ranges? Is it no, exact quotes? It's exact quotes. Well, how do you know that's going to be the right price? What if a patient comes in with, really complex challenge. Well, for example, on rhinoplasty, we yeah. have a primary rhinoplasty mm -hmm. or a revision rhinoplasty price. Okay. There's a little bit difference. I think it's about a thousand dollar difference because a revision can take a little bit longer. But I've had some primary rhinoplasties that are very difficult that have taken longer than a simple revision. So, I mean, we just post the prices. But you hold to that price. We hold to that price. I'm not going to, uh, no bait and switch. So I come in, you say, ooh, and I've had a broken nose, as you probably can tell by looking at me right now, and you've known for a long time. But I, you know, if I want to fix this, it might be more complex with a bunch of shattered stuff in there. So you'll just absorb that. I, as, just, I just, if it's a primary rhinoplasty, it's one set fee. It's interesting. And look, I'm sure every practice has their own philosophy about pricing. I've heard the philosophy too that, well, you know, it really is going to depend. You need a septoplasty. You need, there's a lot of intricacy. So you can't put a price out there. And it also encourages to add to that price shopping and people that think about your services as commoditized as opposed to specialized. Those, those are some of the counterpoints I've heard to somebody sharing their pricing on their website or on real self. Well, septoplasty is a different operation. Septoplasty is different than rhinoplasty and septoplasty typically is billed to the patient's medical insurance once medical necessity has been documented and pre-authorization has occurred. I don't know if somebody's going to need a septoplasty until I look inside their nose at the time of the consultation and examination. Uh -huh. And then we make a determination. No, you don't need a septoplasty or no, you need your septoplasty done and maybe some turbinate surgery or some spreader grafts, but that's billed to insurance in addition to the cosmetic rhinoplasty. Okay. So, your peers who are not sharing pricing information today, will they be doing it tomorrow? I didn't mean tomorrow, tomorrow, but 
In five years from now, do you think pricing information will be pretty much across the internet or do you believe there'll still be this? I still think, I think more and more transparency is going to occur in medicine as more and more patients, their deductibles go higher for their insurance. Mm -hmm. They all want to know what their copays and deductibles are going to be or the the residual leftover. It's a trend you you predict. It's a huge trend. It's a huge trend. And, And so... Health insurance doesn't pay for 100% for the most part of a functional surgery. So patients want to know, how much is this going to cost me at the end of the day? What, what am I going to owe you for the, my copays and deductibles and with my insurance versus at this location, that site of service? I posted my prices, so I didn't want to make it like a mystery shopper. You didn't have to come to my office to figure out what the price was. And then you, you may or may not get sticker shock. And I've seen that happen before where patients go into an office and next thing you know, it's sticker shock. They had no idea it was, you know, this XYZ surgery is going to be so much money. And so there it is. So patients know. So when patients come into my office for a consultation, they've already seen my website. They've already seen all these before and afters mm-hmm. on Real Self on my website. They already know what the price is. So the conversation goes. Th- it's, it's a shorter conversation. Yeah. Interesting. One of the things I want to go back to is just, so you've invested all this time and you've also been an advertiser in real self paying for spotlight advertising in both the Seattle region and beyond. You know, you've looked outside of the Seattle region for bringing attention to your practice. How have you seen us as a company impact your practice? What are some of the things you've seen? I, I mean, beyond like, yeah, I get patients from real self. How has it influenced it? Before Real Self, most of my patients were from the Seattle Metroplex, mm-hmm. Seattle Bellevue. Well, you're a Seattle some, surgeon. Right. <laughs> and some from Eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed as soon as Real Self started taking off, I started getting much more of a regional and even national practice because Real Self was responsible for reverse tourism where patients will fly inside the United States for a specialty type surgeon, for example, a rhinoplasty or or a revision rhinoplasty. So instead of going to Mexico, they're actually coming to excellent surgeons in the United States. Or instead of going to their Manhattan plastic surgeon, they're going to Seattle. Correct. Or somebody who's active on the platform. And how pronounced is that? Is that 5% of patients are are going over 100 miles or is it 10%? What what is Um, your... About half of my practice comes from out of town, out of state. Out of state. Wow. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, but is your staff, do you put them up at a hotel or an apartment? We have three hotels across the street from my office that we make suggestions on where they can go stay. We try to give them some restaurants to go to, some activities to go, maybe go to the Space Needle, the fish market, or some of the museums. Mm -hmm. So we try to give them something to do rather than looking at four walls Mm -hmm. in their hotel room while they're recovering from cosmetic surgery. Mm You know, the out-of-state patients, it's its challenging because we always keep asking them, we want to see you back for follow-up. It's the aftercare. It's the yeah. aftercare. Mm-hmm. So in rhinoplasty, especially, especially patients with thick skin and the tip of the nose, we, we need to get them back here multiple times for steroid mm-hmm. shots in the tip of the nose and manage the soft tissue envelope over the... Yeah, it must be challenging because you do see patients from outside the United States too. Uh, absolutely. Someday you probably should count how many countries <laughs> <laughs> you've seen patients from. But one of the sources that has also, you know, I, I would argue, you know, real self, I've seen the data, I've talked to you, of course, about this topic of, I believe it has allowed you to go beyond your catchment area and expand your practice. But what has also accelerated that is your activity on Instagram. So 
where Instagram reaches a huge audience all over the world. And I, I'm always fascinated to see some people interact with you from places I don't even know. I'd have to look up because I'm, <laughs> and I'm pretty well traveled, you know, just, but I don't even know where these countries are sometimes, but a global footprint. You have, as of last time I looked, over 55,000 Instagram followers. You start at zero, right? Zero. <laughs> have you ever bought followers? No. Oh, okay. It's, so it's these illegal. are the Federal Trade Commission finds that highly illegal. Oh, interesting. So you believe that it's an illegal behavior it to is. actually. Interesting. And, and the Federal Trade Commission has come down and sanctioned companies for buying fake followers. And you think doctors who buy fake followers are taking that risk? Absolutely. Okay. So I guess there's some advice there. Don't do it. There's no reason to. There, there's absolutely no reason to. It seems overwhelming. Look, I, I myself am not a big Instagram active individual. I guess part of my problem is I, I have a little bit of a privacy nature to my life that I enjoy. And I believe you have to give up a lot more about who you are. It's also a lot of work. Do you do it by yourself? Do you have a consultant? Do you have a team of people behind you? Is a camera rolling right now as we're doing this? No, I, I have a staff, younger staff member who's about 30, who's Grew up with a phone. Grew up with a cell phone <laughs> and a computer. And, yeah. and she has taken a very keen interest in growing that component of our practice on Instagram. I've bought a couple of classes for her online, webinars for her to study and mm -hmm. and go through and, and learn. That's her full-time job? Or? No, no, very part-time. Oh, maybe a couple hours, maybe an hour Okay, so a day. You're, you're not saying, hey, if you want to get to 50,000 plus followers that are organically driven you need to go hire a whole staff of people or a, well, an individual dedicated to social media? I think you need somebody that's dedicated to it, but I don't think that's a full-time deal. I mean, she spends maybe an hour a day and probably doing it, and, and including the weekends, which I pay her for. But, I, you know, for us, I think part of our growth on Instagram was I just sat down one day and I said, I think this is important, and here's why. I think, well, I think a lot of patients are... You know, following me on here or they want to follow me. So I had to think really deep, long and hard about what is it that a patient would want to see on a video? Because videos early on for me were getting way more eyeballs on Instagram than, mm -hmm. than just before and after pictures. I don't care how good the picture was, the before and afters of a rhinoplasty or eyelids. So I had to define, okay, what is the aha moment for a patient on rhinoplasty? What is the aha moment? And that is the moment you take the cast off the nose and you give the mirror to the, the patient, reveal. the mm -hmm. reveal, the mm -hmm. rhinoplasty reveal, and all of a sudden that caught a lot of attention, a lot of eyeballs. Yeah, I saw one of your videos had hundreds of thousands of views, even though you may have 54,000 followers, that doesn't mean you're limited to 54,000 people. Correct, uh, correct, but you put your hashtags in for yeah. different components of nose job rhinoplasty and, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, you can get 100,000, 200,000, 400,000 views, yeah. eyeballs looking at just taking the cast off this young woman's nose, and it's an emotional moment for that patient. So it's fascinating. You don't need to be Paul Nassif and have a famous TV program to get that kind of reach if you have the right content. It's the to, right content. To, it's to the, all I'm doing is capturing the emotional moment of that mm -hmm. patient, mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm. Don't you feel like you're giving away your secret? It's all about transparency. 
<laughs> I love There's it. There's no secrets. I think you have to actually care too. You know, when I watch your videos, you're involved in it and it's not just a, I don't know. It just feels like it's something unique about it. It's not, it's, it's authentic. It's also about the patient. If you notice most of the cameras on the patient themselves, not me. It's not about the That's physician. True. It's not That's about true. the surgeon. It's about the patient. But they're awfully young. I mean, I guess when I see, do you get old people like me to show up in those videos or um, are they just more, reticent to more it? More so the younger mm-hmm. crowd, the 20 and 30 somethings. I've been to meetings where doctors learn about Instagram. I'll, I'll do a course on the basics, you know, based on the information we've learned at Real Self, not my own personal account. And a surgeon, particularly in the face plastic realm, will say, yeah, my patients are facelift patients. They just won't agree to being shown in videos and talked about. Do you see facelift being your hardest area to get content around, whether it be for Instagram or for real self or for your own website? I think that there is a little bit to that, although I'd have to look at the amount of pictures that I've given permission to use on facelifts. I think it's 50 or 60 patients have given me their permission okay, so that I've done facelift photos, you know, that I've done facelifts on. But you have to ask yourself, well, what clientele, what age bracket of patients are on Instagram? And it's the 20 to 40 somethings. You know, that's not your facelift crowd. That's the rhinoplasty crowd. And, you know, facelifts is, you know, somebody that's 60-ish. And yes, they're going to be a little bit more private than, say, someone in their 20s. I like how you tackle what are barriers that other doctors have cited to me and saying, here's how you work through them. I appreciate that because I guess you have to find creative, innovative ways to overcome challenges to enable to be successful in social media and beyond. Correct. So it's difficult. I mean, I try to demystify pricing, Mm -hmm. try to be transparent about how much bruising and swelling you're going to get. Here are photos, here's videos of what you're going to look like afterwards. Here's the prices. I mean, everything's right here. Inside of Instagram is an algorithm, as we both know. It is really just a a computer program is deciding what elements of your content are going to appear in front of your followers or people outside of your followers it's changing all the time. We've reported and I've reported on LinkedIn through my you know, writing and channels that, boy, they've taken a big change at Instagram in terms of how much growth they're going to provide to an individual account manager. You yourself have seen follower growth slow dramatically. Can you talk about that? Well, the, the algorithm changed right around July 1st of 2019. And how do you know that? Well, we were getting... 100, 200, 300, 400,000 views on every one of these cast removals. And then mm-hmm. it, within a week or two, it went down to like 10,000. Wow. So 20,000. Not the, just a all. small. It was a huge magnitude order of uh, order decline. But, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't slow our practice down. You know, we are still seeing lots of patients still doing, mm-hmm. you know, plenty of surgeries. And then in the last three or four months, it's starting to come back again. But it's not... The traffic tends to come back more on the second or third week after the post. Oh, interesting. It's not right away. So it's not, you know, you might trickle along at five, seven, ten thousand views mm-hmm. on a little video, and all of a sudden you look back at it three weeks later, you're at a hundred thousand hmm. or you're at fifty thousand. So somewhere downstream, you know, weeks later, the Instagram algorithm is showing that video hmm. more somewhere. Yeah but it's not right away. 
Interesting. So you have to have patience to look at the data over time. Correct. You've mentioned earlier, you got to look at your Google Analytics, and you also referenced quite astute number of insights into your data on Instagram. You seem to be data-driven in how you assess your performance. What's your way of looking at, if we dig into Instagram a little bit, how do you know how you're doing? If you have this other individual in your office running it, do they just give you a report on Tuesdays or something? Or? No, we can look at uh, the previews on each video. There's a little preview uh-huh. and you can open that up. On a business, it has to be on a business account, not a personal account. Mm-hmm. And you can open that up and it'll tell you how many views you had, how many links to your website or patient visits. I mean, all the metrics are right there on that business account. In your uh, Instagram philosophy, is there sort of a line you draw? Like, I'm not going to show, I don't know, family members, some side of your personal life that you think just doesn't belong there. How do you tell your staff member who manages this with you? They obviously know you over time, but is there sort of a written rule book or just a understanding this is the line? Well, this is a business account. I'm a physician and this is a business account. This is not about myself sitting on a beach in Hawaii with a teeny weeny bikini. <laughs> I don't think I want to see that. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it really is. It's about, it's not about the physician. It's about the patient. And it is not about me on a vacation somewhere, right. you know, right. doing some activity. The only posts that we put are about the patients or about be a picture of the patient of myself in the office with her cast on or with off her mm-hmm. cast or, you know, some picture in the office, but... That's it. It's a professional account. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's important as a physician not to mix the business component and a personal component. I mean, if you want to have a personal Instagram account, fine, but that should be for your personal friends. The yeah. business account is just that. It's purely for the office. Yeah, I And guess, I don't think you should mix the two. I guess that's the thing. I have an open Instagram account. Anybody can see it. So I personally draw the line at I just don't put my children in. No. And, and people are like, why? I'm like, it just doesn't belong there. And first of all, they're so young, they should be making that decision and they're not old enough to know better. Correct. You know? Correct. And you said something else about showing yourself in Hawaii. Maybe it's particular to Seattle, but I do think your positioning of your brand as being someone who's focused on medicine and, and patient care is important as opposed to, I'm this wealthy doctor who jets around the world and look how successful I am. So just maybe that works in other markets, but not here. No, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Patients don't really care if I'm on my vacation. They just want to make sure, you know, I yeah. do have, you know, they, they just, it's all about what the patient wants. They want to see another review. They want to see more patients. If they're interested in a procedure like such as a rhinoplasty, they want to see what other people are looking like. They don't care if the doctor's <laughs> on vacation. <laughs> Yeah, why should I care? That's a good, yeah, we're all busy. Okay, I'm going to take us in a place that might make you a little, like, get your blood pressure up, but I'm sure you see things that happen online that other doctors are doing that make you say, gee, that doesn't seem appropriate or professional. Do you want to talk about that at all, or do you, would you rather well, sure. pass on that? No, that's fine. I don't mind talking about it. The biggest one that comes to mind is a topic called photo poaching. I think I can guess what that is. <laughs> photo poaching involves one doctor stealing another doctor's photographs. That doesn't happen, does it? It happens all the time. So I had a doctor say to me, yeah, somebody in Germany or some other country had their pictures on their website. That's what you're talking about. Correct. And, and does it happen often? It happens a lot more than you think it does. It happens in other countries around the world. It also happens within the United States. And what I mean is 
one surgeon will steal another surgeon's before and after photos, post them on his website, his or her website, and mm. call them their own. Yeah, but that's the webmaster doing that, right? Well, I don't know exactly who's doing it. But who's responsible for that content? The, res the person responsible for that content is the owner of the website, the physician. Okay, so you could point to the webmaster and say, hey, they stole these images off of seattlefacial.com. But the reality is the owner of your website are responsible for everything under that name. And Correct. you better have proper rights to every bit of information. There's right. copyright infringement. There can be another legal term called the Lanham Act, which is false advertising. Lanham, L-A-N-H-A-M. Correct, Lanham Act. I Google that. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. That's another surgeon stealing another physician's photographs and calling them his and making an income, making a living off of those photographs, which is false. But that feels incredibly false. deceptive. I mean, just the idea that I, as a patient, would select a doctor based on their before and after pictures. Correct. You, you said that earlier in this conversation, that's important that you actually hadn't delivered those results. Correct. And so I believe you've told me in the past, and I'll, I, I don't know if you're comfortable sharing this, but you have confronted doctors I have. who have poached your images. What is their responses? I mean, it's the webmaster, I'm sure, did it. Is there other... My dog did it. My grandmother did it. I had a little kid that posted uh, it out on my website. It's, it's, it's every excuse for mankind. It. They all apologize. Okay, that's good. And there's, once I get them on the phone, they all apologize. Do they take them down? Within a nanosecond. <laughs> once, once I've caught them. I guess this is one that particularly irks me on that consumer deception aspect. And I just, you know, I don't think our audience members have this problem, but I would say, you know, it's a good thing for them to look back their gallery and to make sure those images are well, theirs. Think about what would happen if the surgeon who stole the photographs got in a medical malpractice lawsuit and it came to light that the patient went to that physician because of the photographs on their website, which were not theirs. Oh, a trial attorney? <laughs> They're uh, rubbing uh, their hands it's, together it's saying, a, show me the money. It's going to be one of those scenarios where you just get out your checkbook and write a check mm -hmm. and for a settlement situation. Okay, so we talked about photo poaching. Any other behaviors that you think are somewhat suspect or concerning that have raised your eyebrows? Buying fake followers on Instagram. Yeah, we talked about that yeah. and that being something you, you pointed is not just poor ethics, but illegal. <laughs> so that little thing. Yeah. I always tell my team, you know, you can do all these creative exercises and experiments on social media and in the company itself, but Tom doesn't look good in orange, so I don't ever want to wear orange jumpsuit. <laughs> So, so far they're doing a great job of keeping us ethical and doing the right things by law and by just what's right for the business and for people. What about on Instagram? I'm sure you've had moments where you see something, oh, wow, I wouldn't do that. Is there anything? Well, I, one, I wouldn't put my kids' pictures on Instagram. Two, I'd keep it professional. Three, if it's a business site, keep it business. If it's a personal site, keep it personal. And I, I think the medical boards have also got rules and regulations about that as well, because they don't want to see the two mixed together. You have a professional side, and there's boundaries that patients and physicians must have, and, and they don't want to see the personal versus business boundaries cross over. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'll admit I was fishing a little bit because I thought maybe you would say something around 
there's a level of decorum almost where, you know, you can see antics and silliness in videos and so forth from some doctors practices. And, and maybe that is their personality, but maybe it is going over a line too. Well, you know, the silliness and antics are fine if that's the kind of clientele you want to attract. <laughs> that's true. But the, like, I'm talking about that's the dancing personal. surgeon, the famous infamous, you know, dancing surgeon case on the East Coast. and Yeah, but she lost her license because she was not paying attention to the patient under anesthetic, gotcha. un, under an anesthesia. Gotcha. And so it was more about uh, singing and dancing and not about taking care of the, uh, this is a patient safety issue. I mean, this is time to go to work and do surgery. This is not ring around the rosy. <laughs> Let's talk about the future and wrap up our conversation. You've been very generous with your time, and I know you're really busy every day um, meeting with patients. So where do you think things are headed? You may have five, 10 years left in your practice time. I don't know. Maybe let's just say 20 if you want to be sort of, you know, still at it, but it's not going to be forever that you're practicing. But where do you see things five years out? Do you believe there's any trends in technology and, and information that are going to show up and affect practices like yours? I think the, you know, the non-invasive procedures are going to be even more wildly popular than they are now. Some type of fat burning, cellulite tightening device, mm -hmm. non-surgical mm -hmm. right now. That technology is still evolving and mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite evolved yet. You're going to see more about price transparency on both insurance-related procedures and on cosmetic procedures. Patients just simply want to know what's, uh, if I'm going to the grocery store, how much is this going to cost? I mean, if I'm going to the plastic surgeon, how much is this going to cost? And I think the surgical techniques of what we do have gotten much, much better. But that happens every, you know, five years, 10 years, yeah. 20 years. And I think you'll see more and more physicians specializing in or subspecializing in very specific procedures, whether that be rhinoplasty or eyelids or facelifts, because patients are really becoming educated. And one, thanks to to RealSelf for that. I mean, RealSelf is the platform, if you will, social platform, internet platform, where you can, as a patient consumer, go in and do your homework on a procedure, figure out what I want to have done, and who, who's going to do it for me? Who's the doctor I'm going to go to to have that procedure done? So that's the beauty of the real self platform. And it just empowers patients, consumers with knowledge to make a smart decision on what they want to do and how much it's going to cost. Yeah. I mean, if we looked at where we fit into that five-year picture, I was talking to Mark Sandritter, our head of digital marketing. And I think I said five years and he's prediction. He said, that's like, a hundred years in, in social media time. <laughs> we have no idea. It'll be 3D, mind meld, whatever, in terms of technology that's moving so quickly. But what I love that stays consistent and something that I've seen in you and your practice over the 10 plus years of you and I knowing each other is it really comes down to delivering great results, doing good work and being deeply authentic. And I, I honor that in the way you've run your practice and the success you've seen, because that's a formula that I think survives no matter what TikTok or whatever shows up on the scene. And same way with the economy. I mean, if you take care of patients, do the right thing and, and have reasonable fees to do what we're doing, in other words, not price gouging, I mean, and have a well-balanced practice. I mean, my practice grew even 10 years ago back in the in the recession. 
Yeah. In the, in the late, you know, 2006 through 2010. Again, you're doing the right things. I, I'm so happy you were open to sharing, as you said, transparency about some of your secrets as well as your thinking. You know, I always admire doctors like yourself who are seeing so much success and yet you don't stand in, on podiums and, and, and at major conferences. You're just you're just doing work and you're delivering great results for patients. It's more important for me to just take care of the patients and do the right thing <laughs> than it is to get up on a podium and just talk about it. I'd rather do it. Any last things you want to share with the audience that's just sitting on their seat's edge wanting to... Uh, just if you're a consumer or a patient and you're trying to find out more information about some specific procedure, whether it's you know, breast implants or rhinoplasty or facelift or tummy toxins, use Real Self as your, as your go-to knowledge base where you can absorb every bit of information you want to from other patients who've been through the procedure. They've got pictures up that are posted and you can look at the pictures. You can find out what surgeon in your local area is doing a lot of those type of procedures. You can look at their photo gallery on the Real Self platform. And I think it's just a fantastic way for, for patients to just do their homework on whatever procedure you're interested in. Well said. Thank you. Thank you sure. again. Thank you. Dr. William Portuguese, SeattleFacial.com, based in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.